Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to the second episode of The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. After the drama of this political week, today's episode is going to be mostly a Boris Johnson free zone, led by Hooray. another 500 questions from you. So, Alistair, where should we start? Well, I want to start with a couple that are about us and this podcast. Peter Yarrow, you say you disagree agreeably, but have you changed each other's mind on anything? And related to that, John, Rory... Would Alistair be more effective if he was less angry and more tolerant of other views? Alistair, would Rory be more effective politician if he was less tolerant and more ruthless? <laughs> <laughs> well, where do, where do we start on that? Would I be a more effective politician if I was less tolerant and more ruthless? I think you would. I think you would. I think you're a bit. I think you're a bit soft for this game sometimes. I think I do see the point of the way that you. Operate, and I think I'm learning that kind of clarity. Um, but I do think sometimes on policy, you need to be able to have the objectivity and the critical thinking, which is a pretentious way of saying. I think sometimes, if you're in permanent campaign mode, it's then quite difficult to flip back to sitting at your desk or sitting at the in the cabinet room and really going back to first principles and working out what you really think regardless of the politics. Mm. Yeah, um, maybe. I mean, I'll tell you one thing that sprung to my mind with Peter Yarrow's question about whether you've changed my mind on anything. I said this at the live show we did. I do find myself sometimes now when I'm about to tweet angrily that I just sort of hold myself back and think, oh, no, Rory says I get too angry on social media. Um, So I have found myself sort of pulling back. Um, But you've yet to change my mind about any of the big policy issues. In fact, one question I've got to throw at you, Rory. Um, How can you sit there, basically, Eric Selly says, and bemoan all that's going wrong in the world? Because basically 13 years of austerity and underfunding is reducing us to a third-rate country. Collapsing state, airports, NHS, DVLA, passport, social care. You, Rory, says Eric, were part responsible. Reply. Well, so I think this brings us, I think the way to reply is to get to the fantastic question from Matt, who basically is on the same line. So Matt says, could you please go more into the deficit and Britain being bankrupt when David Cameron came into government? I've never believed this claim. Wonder whether you could shed any more light on it. So I think this is completely central to the whole question. Um, so let, let me let me do my best attempt to describe why I was in favour of austerity. And I think there are four answers to that. And I can see you already wincing because I can see obviously politicians are not meant to have four reasons to say something. Um, but I'll try to do them as quickly as possible. I think the first one is there are economic arguments for why you don't want to keep running a big deficit and ballooning up your debt, and they relate to inflation. I think the second thing is that there is a question about markets. In other words, the way in which your debt operates, the amount of interest you pay, the willingness of people to keep funding your government depends on the market's confidence that ultimately you're running a responsible financial system. 
And that is, that's pretty difficult to put a number on, but it seemed to me that at a time at which our deficit was running at 140 billion pounds a year, and it's amazing, if you look at a graph, during, uh, you know, Thatcher, Major, Tony Blair, debt sits below 50% of GDP. Financial crisis comes along, 2008, and it explodes up. It starts growing at 140 billion pounds a year, shoots up to about 70-75% of GDP when the Conservatives take over. If it had kept going on that chart, if the government hadn't tried to reduce the deficit, we get to the third problem, which is when another crisis comes along, you need a bit of fuel in the tank. If you allow your debt to keep growing, when COVID came along, we suddenly were in a position of having to borrow another £300 billion to deal with COVID. Debt to GDP shot up to about 100%. But if we hadn't cut it over the previous 12 years, we would have been getting up closer to 200%. And that brings well, where, the final argument. Yep. Where, yep. where are we now? Where are we now? So we're at about 100% now. So to, just to explain that, what happened is that George Osborne and David Cameron came in. They reduced the deficit dramatically and flattened debt to GDP at about the 70% mark. And that meant that when COVID came along, there was headroom to jump up to 100%. But if they hadn't held it down, when COVID came along, we would have been jumping up to closer to 200%. Uh, You see, I think you're falling into the trap that you accuse me of doing, which is you're not being objective about this because you're trying to justify your own decisions. But deep down, you probably think they're unjustifiable. I mean, which other country operated a similar austerity policy that is now doing as badly as we are? Weirdly, of course, um, the European Union had pretty strict austerity policies. They didn't talk about it very much, but there were these very strict fiscal rules operating in Europe. That was one of the reasons for the well, Greek financial happy. crisis. They're always happy. Yeah. And that meant that within the Eurozone, there was very, very limited ability for governments to increase their borrowing and sending. So, so Germany, for example, drove through what, in effect, you'd call an austerity package. Their policies were very similar. Just answer me this, though. Um, we're talking about our relative political ruthlessness. The one thing I would give to Cameron and Osborne is the utter political ruthlessness with which they pushed that through as a political campaign. Do you not at least accept that it was driven as much by politics as economics and it was actually just trying to hang the crash around Labour's neck? I think there was a lot of ruthless politics and I agree with you on that. I think Gordon Brown did a very good job in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. And I think it's very unfair to blame him in any way for what happened. I think if you were going to blame him, it's not because of his response to the financial crisis. It's that public spending was quite high when he went into that crisis. Public spending was was something that we wanted to do. But but remember, he had this cyclical story. So he changed the rules. No more boom and bust. Yeah, the story was there'd be no more boom and bust. And he was always hoping that he could then bring the spending down. And of course, he caught himself at a moment where his spending was rising and the spending had to rise more. Mm. Um, the, the final argument, though, I guess, is, is the sort of political moral argument, which is that if governments don't have constraints on public spending, there are so many reasons for governments to keep making promises to spend more. There are so many good projects out there, almost limitless. Mm. If you are a prime minister, everybody is asking for money all the time. The NHS desperately needs more money. Schools desperately need more money. Roads desperately need more money. But if you answer all those requests and keep spending that money, you are basically driving up your debt and deficit and you're putting the problem eventually on your children and grandchildren. Okay. Because at some point, you've either got to cut spending or increase taxes. Because you keep telling me how busy you are, we've only got 25 minutes and we've already used 10 <laughs> on you defending the indefensible. I'm going to move on. Uh, I promised on one of my Instagram rants, I promised Zaid Hussein that we would ask his question. 
What are our, our shared experiences of John Burko? What are our views of Lindsay Hoyle? And what ideas do we have for the reform of the role of the Speaker? Now, John Burko, I would my first main experience of John Burko was that he phoned me up after my diaries came out to say he was really touched by my work for Bloodwise Charity and would I like to have an event at the Speaker's house? And we had one every year thereafter where he gave us the Speaker's house for a fundraising event. My second experience of John Burko is watching him at an Arsenal match where he is one of the most unbelievably passionate football fans I've ever seen. Um, you can give a more political objective, uh, a political analysis. And then of Lindsay Hoyle, I think Lindsay Hoyle is a good bloke, but I wish to God he would just do be a little bit more proactive about about calling out the, the lies in the House of Commons. And there was a great question from the master, at the master, would it not be a good idea to have a fact checker next to the speaker who could give immediate rebuttal when politicians say things that aren't true. I think it's a lovely idea. Um, on John Burko, it's, without being too pious, it's worth recording that he has been uh, now, I think, quite clearly exposed as having done some pretty horrifying bullying within the House of Commons. Two junior staff, which is something that you and I care about, and mm -hmm. that needs to be called out. I think he made a very, very major decision, which was catastrophic for the country in trying to invoke a 1605 precedent to stop Theresa May bringing back a withdrawal agreement third time, uh, which actually killed the possibility, I think, of getting a moderate Brexit over the line with Labour support. Mm. But I agree with you. He can be incredibly intelligent. He can be very courteous. He was always very kind to me. So I feel a bit bad uh, kicking him, but I'm afraid that there are serious reasons to be concerned about him. Yeah. Okay, let's go on. Caroline Kay, uh, she talks about growing up in the 60s and then also in the 80s and seeing lots and lots of protests. And she says, where are the protests, given that there is so much bad stuff going on in the country at the moment? And it's a very interesting question, that, because, you know, we've talked about Johnson and the booze and all that stuff. But the fact is that there aren't that many protests going on. And I wonder whether it's because people think that protest is what you do on social media now. I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. And I'm sure that's, I mean, protests basically traditionally have been driven, obviously, by young people. You look at those crowds in the 60s, they're 80% people under 25. And the question is, what is the culture of people under 25? And are they politically motivated in that way? Here's a question for you. Susan, what three places, sites should every school child visit as part of their education? I would suggest Auschwitz, she says. Oh, wow. Um, I would say... A history museum, a science museum, and then for a field visit, I think the killing fields of France. Okay. I think that that would be a very good thing to do. And of course, Brexit has made that more difficult, Rory. Here's my three. The caves of Lascaux in France, those amazing cave paintings, which are bizarre because it turns out that the paintings are almost identical from sort of 30,000 years ago and from 10,000 years ago. So nearly 20,000 years, they're painting in the same style. Um, I'd like people to go to the Isle of Skye, I think mm -hmm. there's no way of seeing geology, nature, ocean, rocks. In It's like, you know, it's, it's incredibly beautiful. It's got all the romance of Scottish history. But you can also sometimes feel you're like on another planet. You ha you'd, ha you'd have to do that, Rory, all year, because Fiona and I went to Skye at a fairly busy time of the year last year. We, we swam in the fairy pools, which was pretty extraordinary, but it was unbelievably busy. Oh, was it? Uh, so, 
Yeah, it really was. So if we're taking every school child in the country to Sky, we're going to have to stage that very, very, very carefully. Well, I guess most of the the most of the islands are amazing. So we could spread it out between the islands. I mean, I think huge argument for getting people to Iona, getting people up to the Orkneys would be incredible. Yeah. And your third one? Jerusalem. I've just come back from Jerusalem. I was there three days ago. I, there's nothing like it. I mean, it yeah. is tragic. It's moving. The concentration of religious belief in the Dome of the Rock, mm. the Wailing Wall, the Temple of the Holy Sepulchre. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I also find, I also do, I've, I've been both to Auschwitz and to the Yabashem Museum. I do find the, the, their museum particularly affecting and moving and, and educational. Martin Edwards, do we think that MPs should take, have to take a basic competence test and also a lie detector test? <laughs> no, no, we shouldn't. It's a democratic right that we can elect anybody as an MP, regardless of their competence and honesty. Wow. But isn't that a bit of a problem? It is. It is well, actually, it was very weird. When I was in Iraq, I, I, we were setting up uh, democratic elections for the first time in this council I was in 2003-4 and the Iraqis kept arguing that you should only be entitled to stand for um, election if you had a master's degree or a doctorate and I had to explain you know John John Major was a non-graduate yeah when he came yeah. to parliament and that that's yeah. not really our system yeah um how here's one for us personally Rory Charlotte Baylor how do we that's you and I square our relentless traveling around the world with our oft expressed concerns for the future of the planet and the climate yeah now i know can i say something in your defense yes. when we were up in your place yeah. in scotland yeah you have personally planted a lot of trees <laughs> i know that i saw them and i have planted trees by doing the off the offsetting thing but it's a fair point isn't it it's a fair point on the other hand uh, particularly the stuff that I'm working on a lot at the moment, which is international development. I do not believe that you can run high quality programs in Rwanda or Malawi without getting out on the ground. I think it's very dangerous to believe that you can manage things well remotely. Here's one for you. Is there anything we're doing today that you think this is from Alistair as opposed to Alastair that you think we'll look back on in 30, 50 or 100 years and feel unthinkable? Petrol cars, eating meat, unregulated social media? Well, I guess my, my hope is that we'll look back in 50 years and think, did we really used to think that if you had a certain mental health condition, there were jobs you couldn't do? Um, I hope we'll look back in 50 years and think that the prisons that we have in 50 years are civilised and reforming and rehabilitative. But I don't hold up much hope, to be absolutely frank, where I am at the moment. I think the other thing I think is, you know, if you think about public health and how the debate on smoking has, has transformed in the last 50 years, I don't know whether the debate on drink might go in the same way. I doubt it. But again, I think that we may reach a point of thinking, my God, did we really used to sort of drown ourselves in alcohol in that way? I don't know. But uh, and on the social media regulation, that's another one where I'll believe it while I see it. What do you think? So for me, I think people will look back and be completely bewildered by how busy we made ourselves and how little time we gave ourselves for contemplation. Okay. The way in which we made emails, tweets, back-to-back uh, -back Zoom meetings a living hell and uh, what weird human beings we created through this complete overload of information and data. Well, I think that's probably a nice chilled moment at which to take a very short break. <laughs>
So here we are. We've got some great questions from uh, Natasha, who asks, are there any female leaders in politics today you'd call out as charismatic and ones to watch? For starters, Prime Ministers Finland, Estonia, New Zealand. And Jennifer, who are the most inspirational and promising female politicians you've ever met across the political world and ideological spectrum? I'd like to tell my daughter more about contemporary female politicians, but my limited knowledge of them only really extends to Theresa May, Hillary Clinton and Angela Merkel. Mm. Um, I was going the, the name that popped into my head when the, when you started the question was Hillary Clinton, who I, she was over in um, South Shields with David Miliband doing his annual lecture this this week. Um, I do. I th- I think there is something happening. In fact, I, the the speech I made in Portugal last week, I talked about all the women leaders who'd done really really well on COVID, and I think there is such a kind of armory of literature and research into the whole strongman theory of leadership. But actually, I think there is a a sense of a of, of, of more women leaders emerging, and frankly, often doing the job better. Um, and I would, I do think. Look, Jacinda Ardern, funnily enough, is getting a bit of a rough time in New Zealand at the moment. She's not maybe she's getting a touch of the Gorbachev syndrome, um, but actually, I think she does have something very, very special. Um, all those that were mentioned by Natasha in Finland, Estonia, the Estonian Prime Minister who's just done a you know, pretty big move this week, getting rid of quite a few of her of her government. So I think there is a, there is something going on, which I think is is good. And I think actually, it's partly driven by those parliaments where there have been, you know, they they have actually made moves to 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 insist on a certain level of female representation. I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I, in Afghanistan, there were some really remarkable politicians. A woman called Habiba Sarabi, who was the governor of Bamiyan. Um, Seema Samar, who ran the Human Rights Commission, extraordinary people. I think it's also worth bearing in mind that there have been also extremely controversial, slightly autocratic, big personality politicians, um, mm. which we've seen in, in India and in Pakistan and Bangladesh and, and in Britain. Let's not talk about Margaret Thatcher. It's really, really no, no point. <laughs> on a similar theme, Stephen Munro, who, run, who works on the Corran Ferry that I've talked about before, does Rory's wife influence his politics in the same way that Fiona influences Alistair's? Yes, particularly over education. She was a teacher in inner city schools in New York and Boston. Very, very challenging schools. That was the first job she went into when she graduated. And I think she's really helped me to understand the way in which really good schools involve being very loving, developing very good relationships, but also knowing when to set boundaries and when to be strict. Is she um, broadly in favour or against private education? Well, she didn't go to a private school herself, so I think she's she's sceptical. But I, I think she, she believes in really good schools. She does believe in quality, and she thinks that her experience, particularly in difficult bits of Harlem, were that she did get frustrated with an idea that people weren't setting high enough standards for children from difficult backgrounds, that you could challenge people and you could get much better performance out of them than some of her colleagues felt. At Snail Clout, have you ever had imposter syndrome? Well, me all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I feel whenever I give a speech and I get too much applause or whenever people come up, I, I was on the plane, actually. Your, your podcast house was doing very well so that the, the flight attendant stopped the trolley next to me and said that she'd just been listening to it. And then the guy behind me on the seat, this is flying from London to Oman yesterday, said he was listening to it at the time at which he was sitting on the plane behind me. Um, at that point, I feel real imposter syndrome. I feel completely yucky. I don't feel I can sort of live up to this kind of view. How about you? 
I had exactly the same um, on a plane the other day at, at Glasgow Airport where the, the guy who was checking the ticket said, I've just been listening to your podcast. It is quite strange how many people are, are listening to it. I'll tell you when I had a really strong... I think any time I was in the presence of um, Mandela, I had a slight imposter syndrome. In fact, there was another question, by the way, what was our favourite parliament building? And I think mine is Cape Town. But the other time when I had real imposter syndrome was during the Kosovo War, when General Wes Clark, who was the, uh, the head of the whole NATO operation, and he had me in this room where he was basically taking me through the targeting plans. And I, I realised at one point he was sort of asking me whether I thought these targets were justified. And I'm thinking, look, I'm, I'm quite up to making decisions and I'm f- perfectly happy to represent Tony Blair here in this NATO headquarters. But I think you're asking me whether you should bomb the Milosevic media machine. Um, so that was, I definitely had imposter syndrome then. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was, that was a big moment of imposter syndrome. Now, Matthew, what is your favourite cheese? Oh, uh, Roquefort by, I mean, I'm addicted to it. I can eat it all day. <laughs> right, right, very yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Okay. What's yours? Uh, well, I'm afraid it's a cheese from Bewcastle in North Cumbria, uh, coincidentally in my constituency, but not just because it comes from my constituency. Oh, I see. So is that where you're going to try and get your seat when you get back to where Johnson's gone? Okay, well, Penrith sorry. and the Border is still what I'm very much in love with, and it's made by an, a lot of the milk comes from an amazing guy called Steve Pattinson who has some, some uh, dairy cows to 60, herd of 60, up on this amazing <laughs> territory north of Hadrian's Wall, Bucastle cheese. Right, on food, James says he's going on a lad's trip to Jordan, and he wants what? to know what... He's going on a lad's trip to oh, Jordan. For goodness sake. And he wants to know what the food's like and what you recommend. Well, the food is amazing. I mean, the food is unbelievable. Um, it's Middle Eastern food, so obviously all this uh, aubergine eggplant stuff, uh, hummus incredible grilled meats, but above all, fantastic salads. I don't know whether that works with his vision of a lad's trip to Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's one here. So there's a question here about Mumsnet and the interview that Mumsnet did with Boris Johnson, where the first question, which was from one of their followers, it was, why should we believe a word you say when it's proven that you're a habitual liar? And it was a very, very tough question. It was a very tough interview. And John Ashton asks, why are our main interviewers on BBC, etc., so tame and supine when we see proper interviewing like that by something like Mumsnet? And I do think the BBC at the moment has got a real problem. I thought the way that they don't talk about Brexit in relation to the economy going wrong, when it's so clearly uh, a big part of it, and even the thing about Johnson getting booed was sort of, you know, really downplayed. And I think they sort of think they're doing themselves a favour, but I think the opposite. It's it's a difficult balance, though, isn't it? Because obviously there is something wrong with the sort of Jeremy Paxman style of overly aggressive interviewing. Mm-hmm. You know, you remember he goes into every interview thinking, "What is it? What is this lying, liar, why is lying?" It, why is this? Li- yeah, he claims yeah, exactly. he never said that, by the way. Well, anyway, but I think that that style doesn't give a chance for a politician to actually come across with any kind of seriousness because you've mm. just in this gotcha sense. But equally, you're right if you don't challenge. I mean, I think actually. There's been some great interviewing done by Sky. I think Sky is really good across the board, actually, on, on the way in which they're holding people to account and pinning people down. Um, here's, here's a good question from Captain Grant, maybe, maybe as we move towards the end. Whose political diaries have influenced your thinking or persuaded you in some way? No mention of Alistair's diaries allowed. And what non-political diaries have you enjoyed? 
Uh, I find the second part of that easier to answer because I read for the first time last year in Auf Deutsch, but I read Anne Frank's diary, which was so not what I expected. It was absolutely one of the most extraordinary books I've ever read, partly because she's for somebody so young to be such a brilliant writer is extraordinary. And it wasn't really just about the privations of war and, and, and hiding, being hidden. It was about sexual awakening. It was about relationships. It was about family. Um, and when Fiona and I were in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago, we actually we visited the, the house. And uh, so, yeah, I think that had a massive impact on me because it's one of those books that everybody thinks they know. And of course, I would happily have sort of opined about the importance of Anne Frank's diary all my life. But having now read it, it is, I, I get now just why it is such an extraordinary piece of literature. Oh, my, my, my response to that is much less impressive. But it is, if somebody's interested in geeking out, there's an incredible set of diaries which are available free on Kindle if you want by the Duke de Saint Simon. And these are diaries describing his experience of Louis XIV's court. So it's very odd. It takes you right into the middle of France in the early 1700s. And the weird jockeying for power, the crazy uh, touchiness. I thought we weren't meant to be talking about my diaries. (laughs) You are the Duc de Saint-Simon. Right, I think on that, it's a goodbye from me, Rory Stewart. And it's a goodbye from me, Alistair Campbell. See you next week.